You're listening to Writers on Writing, a show about the art, craft, and business of writing. I'm Barbara DeMarco Barrett. My guest today is Candy Sari. She's a graduate from the University of California, Irvine. Her novel, Black Crow, White Lie, won the Reader Views Literary Award, a Chanticleer International Book Award, and was first runner-up in the Eric Hoffer Book Award. Her new novel, Magdalena, will be released by Regal House Publishing on July 11th. Mother of two adult children, Candy lives in Southern California with her husband, a dog, a cat, and several ducks. On the show, we talked about creating a playlist, her influences, ghosts, taking your time, how the publication of Magdalena has affected the writing of the current novel, and more. But before we bring her on, I want to say just a few words about Patreon. If this show has helped you on your writing journey, please consider visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash writers on writing. Become a supporter. There are perks for supporters, and any amount at all helps us to continue doing what we're doing. For more than 20 years, the show broadcast at KUCI on the UC Irvine campus. During COVID, Marie and I began doing the show from our homes. We never returned to the station, but we did have to invest in equipment to do the show from our homes. It's been worth it, yet even a few bucks a month helps us to continue bringing the show to you, so please consider. And now, for my talk with Candy Sari, author of Magdalena. So Candy, I'm so happy to talk with you about Magdalena. Tell us about the book. How did it come about? So, well, first, thank you for having me on your show. I love your show. Um, So I started writing Magdalena the year that both my kids went off to college. Um, And anticipating the empty nest was, was pretty hard on me. Um, so I thought I was writing a ghost story, but the main character, Dottie, who had had four miscarriages, seemed to be more haunted by not having children than the ghost town that I set her in. Um, and so, you know, I kind of let her lead the way. I took that direction. And by the time I finished writing the novel, I realized that um, I wrote this as a way to mourn the empty nest, you know, it was, there's, you know, longing for a child. There's, you know, um, lots of motherhood in there in this ghost story. So it kind of turned into something that I didn't expect it to be. And also um, it's, it's not really epistolary. I mean, they're not letters to someone, right? but you know, like back and forth, but it is kind of epistolary, right? I mean, cause Dottie is writing, this long narrative for a reporter. Yes. So she's writing it because, so Dottie, basically there's a a 15 year old neighbor who is the town sensitive and she comes to conjure a ghost for Dottie. And Dottie is more intrigued with her super, is less intrigued with her supernatural ability than with having a real girl in her home. You know, again, it would have been a daughter. She would have had a daughter about that age So she starts to secretly and sort of obsessively pretend that Magdalena is her daughter. And, you know, 
with that obsession, you know, comes some healing because Magdalena visits a lot, but eventually the girl goes missing and Dottie being the outcast in the town, the whole town blames her and thinks she had something to do with it. So the entire novel is Dottie trying to explain herself in a letter, trying to tell the truth, even the ugly truth to prove that she's innocent. She didn't do anything to the girl. You know, what I didn't know um, until I read one of your articles was that you've had like a lot of these sort of, I don't know what to call them, not uh, visitations, but something having to do with ghosts or speculative uh, goings on. I had no idea about that. Maybe say a little bit about that and how that worked into the book. You know, I've as a kid, I was super afraid of death. And so it started young. And so I loved ghost stories, not the not the creepy, scary ones, but the ghost stories about about loved ones visiting people. You know, I'd always hoped that if someone in my family passed away, that they would stay nearby, you know, that I could that I could hang on to them in some way. And that that just kind of always stayed with me. And so, you know, writing you know, I get to create ghosts that, you know, that are real in my stories, but, but in life, I always sort of look for signs. So I had a, an old neighbor, he was in his eighties, had passed away. And, um, the night before he passed, one of my neighbors had a dream about him standing on the roof, just throwing pennies down. And the next morning that neighbor's mother got an email chain called angels throwing pennies from heaven. And then Bob passed away. And so I thought, Oh, I'll look for pennies. So the day of, um, after his funeral, I was in a parking lot and a man was walking toward me and he sort of looked like Bob. So I thought to myself, you know, I'm going to stop and smile at this man. It'll be like, I'm smiling at Bob once again. And as he's walking toward me, he stopped about two or three feet in front of me bent down, stood up, and and he picked up a penny from the ground and just held it. I mean, I had the chills. It felt like a movie. Like, is this really happening? And then I would find pennies in the strangest places. I would, My husband and my kids were walking the dogs one day, and I brought up a story about Bob. And right after I told it, there were like three or four pennies in a row on the street. And so it just felt like, okay, this is real, you know, or um, I had um, another friend who passed away and um, a really good friend of ours. And I'm convinced that he sets off our smoke alarm, uh, to send his wife a message because the night after he passed, our smoke alarm just went off and it had never done that before. And then the first father's day after he passed was also his wife's birthday. Smoke alarm went off again. And so, you know, it starts going off at different times. And I, you know, I text my friend, you know, is, is, is your honey trying to tell you something, you know, it's just, you know, lots of, these things happen and maybe I look for them, but, but I like the magic of it. Yeah. Yeah. I thought, I mean, that's great. And then there, there was something about lost keys. Oh, my grandfather. Um, so my grandfather, he died when I was about 18 and he had always told me I was his favorite. He was so sweet. And I remember once losing my keys. And so I, I, I mean, it took me forever. I just could not find them. So one day, you know, I mean, so I said, grandpa out loud, can you help me find them? And a little while later under the, you know, couch cushion, there they were, you know, so (laughs) I just loved thinking that it really was him, you know? Yeah. No, I love those stories. And also um, Crow's figure 
big in this book. And also your last book was Black Crow, White Lie. So talk about crows and what they mean to you and how they found their way into the book. Okay. So the inspiration came from that same friend, Bob, who leaves pennies. When we first moved into that house, you know, Bob in his eighties and my daughter was like three and Bob used to break up bread and feed the crows. And of course, like everyone else, I didn't like crows. I thought they were bothersome. Um, and he would, you know, feed them. So my daughter used to go over and he would give her bread and the two of them standing together, an 80 year old man and a three-year-old girl, just tossing bread into the street, it's, I have a picture of it too. It's just so beautiful. And I just started liking them from there. So then my son was in kindergarten and he came home one day and said, mom, the lunch ladies are not very nice. And I said, why? He goes, they won't let me feed the crows. I said, oh no, no, honey. Like we only do that at home, you know? So I just started paying attention to crows and they're so beautiful. They're so smart. I started learning about how smart they are. Um, and things would happen while I was writing Black Crow. I had to describe a crow in one scene and I was walking my dogs around the block and there was a crow just lying in my neighbor's um, driveway and it didn't seem hurt. So I, I took the dogs home and I went back up and I spent about a half hour just staring. We just stared at each other, this crow. And I, I mean, it was so beautiful to have this moment. And I, I just had, you know, moments with crows like that. So yeah, they're really special too. And I in the novel, I have a crow. Yes. Yeah. They're misunderstood. <laughs> misunderstood. Yes. They're, uh, yeah. I, there, we used to have a woman in the neighborhood that was the crow lady and she would rescue the crows, oh. you know, as the ones that fell out of trees. And, and then they would end up getting better and following her on her dog walks. Yeah. And I had one that did follow me on my dog walks. That's just so cool. I want, I don't have a dog to walk, so I might not have that experience, but and um, in the novel, the, the crow lady, the, the male lady who keeps hot dogs in her you know pocket to feed the dogs who also feeds the crows. That's a true story. I found out that there is a male lady on Balboa Island <laughs> that did that. And so a friend of mine told me, I said, okay, I need to borrow her for my book. <laughs> I love that. I love that story. Um, so like with this book, with, with Magdalena, was there like a moment where you knew that this had to be a book? I mean, do you know, it's like, it seems like books, you know, there's a variety of things that happen that um, convince us that it, it needs to be a book. But sometimes it's like also a moment where you go, you know what? It's not a story. It's not an essay. It's not, um, it's not, you know, just an idea this, you know, I can see this, this is going to be a book. Well, what's interesting is <laughs> I, when I first started writing it with, you know, I, I think I had 40 pages and my daughter was in college at the time. And I shared with her because she was going to film school. And so she was writing screenplays, you know, we kind of connected with writing. So I gave her my first 40 pages um, with this idea. And she basically said, um, I don't like any of it except these three little paragraphs, <laughs> these three ideas. And so it's kind of it's kind of backwards there. I had to delete. In fact, I recently looked up that first chapter, like what was so bad about it? And I kind of liked it, but I I it just went in a totally different direction. Um, so I 
after she read, she said which three paragraphs she liked. We sat together and we talked for about two hours, just brainstorming. That's how the setting came to be, you know, just because she was very visual being a, um, you know, into film. And we talked about the fog and the, you know, the eerie vibe and, and all that kind of stuff. And so, you know, the fictitious town was developed that night. And, and so, yeah, it's sort of, I had another idea and it grew into this with the help of my daughter. So my daughter inspired it in many ways, you know, not only the empty nest, but actually reading the early draft. So then what, what happened then? So you had this idea or you, it was more focused after talking with your daughter and brains. So what happened then? So then I, I think I was really inspired just, you know, how lonely writing can be, you know, we, it's all in our head and to have shared that time with her for two hours, I think I left so inspired and, and then I just got to work and it just started coming to me because of all that we had talked about and brainstormed. And I wrote a lot in that very beginning. It just, you know, a lot came out. And then of course it still took like, gosh, at least three years for the first draft and, you know, several years for the next drafts. I mean, there it's, you know, it's a long, <laughs> it takes me a long time. Yeah. You have to be really into the idea. Yes. <laughs> yes. And yeah, that's it. You have to love what you're writing. And I sort of like, I think, you know, I think for me, I like to sort of tell myself that the story already exists and I need to find clues in life to like piece it together. And so that's what makes it fun for me, you know, to, to find people that may resemble a character and find inspiration there or things happen in life. And I'll think, oh, this would fit in the book, you know, that kind of thing. And like the landslide in the book, I was driving up to see my parents one day and my mom called and said, oh, you know, my niece said, don't take Paseo del Mar. It's this, it's a, um, a road that's near a cliff. Don't take there because there's some slippage. There's some slippage over there. And I, you know, so driving up for the hour drive, I'm thinking about the landslides that happen over in that side of town. And here I'm writing a ghost story and I need to make sense of why so many people died. I'm like, there's going to be a landslide. Like, you know what I'm saying? So like, it just came to me like, oh, there's a piece I get to take from life, you know? Yeah. During, during those years, did, did you ever hit a wall where, you know, you just went, I don't know, maybe, maybe I have to put this aside, or maybe you did put it aside for a period of time. I don't know. But like, you know, what about difficult times? Because I think all novelists hit that point where you either question your idea or you don't know what's next, or maybe you did an outline and you still don't know what's next because whatever you wrote down in your outline, is not working. I think it's almost always difficult. And that's why I need to find that magic to keep me going. I mean, I, I write so much that I delete. I think I write more that I delete because I'm getting to know the characters on the page. But I think the thing that keeps me going, so I started writing when my kids were babies. So I've been writing 28 years. I wrote six novels that didn't go anywhere. And so I guess I always no, okay, I can do this. Like, you know, I know I can finish because I finished six times. And then the seventh book was Black Crow got published. This is the eighth one I wrote, but I think I keep going because I know I can. And, and when it's tough, I mean, there, yeah, there are times where I just like, I'm just not going to write for a while. But then if I don't write, something's missing in my life. So I need to get back to it, you know? Yeah, 
So the the books you wrote that you didn't do anything with, did you do anything with any portion of those books? Did you do you have scraps that you go, you know what, maybe this is a story or maybe this is an idea for a future novel or whatever. I mean, what happened to those? You know, I I didn't. I you know, we submitted, I had three different agents with three of those books. So we submitted and I got to hear feedback from publishers, which was really good experience for me. I submitted into contests and, you know, made the finals. So it helped build my resume. So I do look at them as teaching me a lot, but I feel like they reflect a certain time in my life where I was really curious about that. Like you said, like, Mm -hmm. what's the topic that, that kind of fed my soul to keep me wanting to move along in that story. And I feel like, you know, I've moved to a different place in my life and I don't know if I'm as curious about that, you know, to go back to them. I mean, I wonder if I ever would go back. There's one I'm curious about, but yeah, the others I just think of as um, school, you know, (laughs) just, just learning and confidence, like, okay, you can finish this, you know? I think the thing I didn't know then was how important the rewrites were. I often submitted that first draft. I was done. It's like, oh, I'm done. Let's submit, you know? And it's like, no. Yeah. It's not funny, you know? I mean, writers, sometimes new writers just go, well, I spent three years on it. Why do I? (laughs) Yeah. Right. Right. Because you do maybe a few more times even. Right. Right. How do your rewrites go? Do you, are you, do you start with more sort of global, like, plot types of things, challenges? Do you do everything at once and just keep doing everything until, you know, like not just sort of the big issues, but also maybe dealing with your, I don't know, similes, metaphors, extra words that we always throw in that we have to get rid of. I mean, how do they, do you have a a method to your revision? I guess is what I'm asking. You know, I think there's lots of layers. So sometimes like, you know, the first revision will be focused on one character and kind of going through and developing that. The next revision will maybe be like, you know, let's look at setting, like really get that down. Um, And then oftentimes there's layers, you know, how like your first draft is the basic story. But when you start getting to know the story and the characters, you know, there's deeper layers that you have to address. And so I think I do a little bit of everything and then I'll, you know, send it to an editor, get some feedback outside, you know, outside eyes, make things look so different, of course. Um, But yeah, I do, you know, a ton of rewrites um, and they're just all different. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, So do you start on computer? Do you do longhand with early drafts? How do you like get it going? Where do you get it going? You know, Magdalene, I did mostly on the computer, but I love writing by hand in notebooks. Other, you know, previous novels, I did that. So just recently, actually, with this next novel, when I've been stuck, I would go back to a notebook and something different happens when you're writing by hand, like it flows better. And then as I, you know, transcribe it into my computer, you can edit as you go. It's kind of like I like the layers of doing both, you know. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I know. I mean, I think the current novel, I wrote the first draft entirely by hand. Entirely. (laughs) Because I don't know 
play. I mean, I love writing by hand and then transcribed and I'm like, oh my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) And my handwriting wasn't, isn't really good enough when I'm writing like that to give it to someone and pay them to, to put. I can barely read my own handwriting. So yeah, I can never. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, it is. I love writing by hand. Um, So then, um, so then what? So you have your draft, it's been edited, it's been revised, um, you feel good enough to get it into the marketplace. What happened then with Magdalena? So then I submitted to, um, let's see, I had submitted to the, the what is it, the William Faulkner writing competition, made the finals and that. So that helps, you know, with your um, query letter, getting some attention. Um, I, I had quite a few agents read it but no agent picked it up. So I would, you know, again, rewrite based on some of the feedback. Like it just, it was, you know, lots of rewriting. Um, And then what's interesting is, let's see, it was uh, Christmas day of 2020, a small publisher. I just, I decided to start just submitting to um, small publishers that don't need an agent. So a small publisher on Christmas day sent me an email and said, you know, yes, we'd like to publish it. And I hadn't really like taken a good look at this publisher. And so I thought, okay, so I started asking some questions in the next few days and the publisher seemed offended that I asked some questions about them. It was, it was kind of a, it didn't seem like a very good match. And so I said, you know, gosh, I really appreciate this, but I think I'm going to go with, you know, another option. And she replied, you know, with something like, oh, glad you have so many options. Kind of thing. <laughs> so then I was like, oh gosh, you know what? Ha-? So I did a little more research and that's when I found Regal House. And I was like, okay, this looks like a really good independent publisher. So I submitted, um, I think it was like the very end of December and I sent 50 pages. And the next day they said, we really like what we read. So can you um, mail us the complete manuscript? And I was like, super excited about that. But, you know, I, I know I've sent my manuscript out so many times, but I went to the post office and I'm standing in line holding my manuscript and, you know, Regal House, their logo is a crown. And standing right in front of me is a woman with a very low cut top in the back. And on her back is this big crown, just like the Regal House logo. And I was like, <laughs> okay, the universe is telling me that this is the one, you know, so... <laughs> So, so these messages come to you. you yeah, <laughs> I, I think they're messages. I mean, you know, I laugh because, you know, as a novelist, like we tell other people's stories and I realize, gosh, I tell myself a lot of stories. Like I'm, I'm entertaining myself with these stories and like, you know, that. Yeah. But you're writing the book you want to read too, right? Yes. I mean, yes. No, I mean the stories that, okay, that's the universe telling me that this oh, right. has been accepted or, or yes, the pennies, it's my, it's Bob, you know? <laughs> so um, do you, when you were, when you were finished or as you were writing, did you say, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, make sure this fits the speculative fiction category. I mean, because that's, I suppose, where it would be, right? Speculative literary fiction, perhaps. Um, how do you categorize it? Like in your query, what did you say? I don't even think I categorized it. I just <laughs> described it like, I, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm calling it like a literary ghost story, but I've seen, you know, it it 
labeled in different ways. My publisher and my publicist have sent to, yeah, different kind of areas that I wouldn't have expected. So I think I just sort of wrote what came to me without thinking of genre and now I have to figure it out. <laughs> yeah, because it does have, you know, the ghosts uh, and yet it's, it's rooted in reality in a real yes. place. And so, you know, I'm like, oh, this is really an interesting take on speculative fiction. You know, it's kind of, I mean, I, there's a character I thought was a ghost but I think she's a real woman, the broccoli woman. I thought. I thought <laughs> the <was>. centenarian. <laughs> yeah, because I yeah. thought every time she comes, she smells, there's this broccoli smell. And is that a <laughs> ghost thing? Do ghosts come with smells, you know? Um, well, that's interesting. When I, I did, you know, doing some research on, on ghosts. Yeah, there's smells, you know, there's smells involved. There's, um, what else was it? When it gets really cold, you know, you can tell a ghost is around. Um, what else did I, yeah, just doing a little research, you know, how electricity, of course, you know, spirits, you know, get into your electricity and those kinds of things. So I did want to put a lot of smells in the book just because of that. But yeah, so the centenarian, I do have a scene where she touches Dottie just so, just so the reader would know that she, she is real. <laughs> what about lemons? Was that just something you came up with, or have you heard something about ghosts and lemons? <laughs> no. So I I wrote I wrote lemons in, and I I loved the visual of the lemons, and I had to make sense of that, and I didn't know how, so I just I just kept it in, and I just kept moving forward, moving forward, and then once I got to the end, something came to me. I mean, it wasn't until I was at the end that I realized, oh, this could be why the lemons bring the ghost in. And so, you know, you discover it at the end. But but yeah, sometimes it's not until later that I realize what's happening, but I can tell I want to keep this in. So let's keep going and see what happens. <laughs> okay, so then back to Regal House, um, which I guess it's, um, did it get an award for being an independent publisher, like one of the best independent publishers? Yeah, it won Publisher of the Year, I think, last year. Yeah, it's it's yeah. it's a really great, It's it's been a great experience. Um, Janie uh, is amazing. I mean, she does so much. It's a, a you know, woman-run publishing company. And what I love about it is how she connects the authors, you know, she brings everyone together. And so my group has 12 people published, uh, you know, summer of 23. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we all, we're all in a group email supporting each other. And what's interesting is I, you know, when I first, they're, they're back East, but when I first looked at the list of, you know, authors, I found two around here. So Jude Atwood, who wrote, maybe there are witches, um, he's a, a professor at OCC. And so we met and then Lisa Cupolo, um, you know, she lit, you know, works at Chapman and we got to know each other and became such good friends. And, you know, it's been so great to find friends through my publisher, you know, who actually live close by. So that's interesting. Interesting yeah. that she does that, that the publisher yeah. you know, tries to create community amongst the writers, right? Yeah. Yeah. I've read so many of the books now from Regal House because you do, I get emails about things or, you know, following on social media. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a really great support system there. Do you find a similarity in the projects? Do, does, does she, does the publisher have a certain, um, I don't know, thing she likes or tastes that she 
is going for that that connects all of the projects? Are they all similar in some way, would you say? You know, I think there's a pretty good variety. I mean, I've read like quite a variety. They're they're really, I mean, they're pretty unique. She likes literary fiction. Um, but yeah, they're I can't think of, you know, one subject. I think it's quite a variety. Interesting. Well, I would love to hear you read from okay. that. So I will start with the prologue, the prologue short, and then I'll read a little bit from chapter one. Okay. In my dream, they're both still with me, the girl and the ghost. Their presence is so strong, something inside of me, even in sleep, awakens. I watch from above and see myself on my living room couch, a slender woman with a kind of sloping shoulders that come with being too tall. Thin hair, pale skin, I'm not much to look at. There's a 15-year-old girl sitting beside me with long, thick hair, warm brown skin, and the kind of confidence that comes with being born beautiful. Somewhere between us is the ghost only the girl can see, and I can distinctly feel. Nothing happens in my dream. The ghost doesn't move things around the house anymore. The girl doesn't busy herself with her phone anymore. We just sit together as if understanding it's only a dream. And maybe if we stay still enough, we can hold on to this miraculous time together again. While there appears to be no change in the scene for the entire length of the dream, by the end, I notice my shoulders have risen up. I'm sitting tall the way the girl sits. It's only a slight difference in my appearance, but I'm struck by how unusual it looks on me. While the girl and I share few physical characteristics, our silhouettes now resemble each other. It's as if once someone has come into your life and made an imprint, It can change the very shape of you. When I wake, I don't feel changed anymore. Not here in this sad room where they've put me. I prefer the lights out so I don't have to see what I've become. I just want to close my eyes and fall back to sleep and dream again about the girl and the ghost and how we were before I lost them. And then chapter Keep going. Magdalena once told me she knew how to cure sadness. She read on that little phone of hers that we all need 15 minutes of sun every day, and without it, depression could set in. Those of us here on the peninsula barely get 15 minutes a week. The fog comes in over the cliffs in the morning, creeping through town, shrouding all neighborhoods with a thick graveyard effect. We don't have an actual graveyard, but the landslide all those years ago took enough lives and left enough ghosts behind to bring on that kind of fog. If it does lift around mid-morning, a heavy cloud cover still stays most of the day, keeping things gray. I'd always thought my sadness came from the unfortunate things that happened in my life, but according to Magdalena, my gloom might simply be a lack of vitamin D. From the day she got the phone, she stared into it constantly, seeking answers to all of her questions, and even finding new questions she would have never thought of on her own. She fed on its information like meat. Mushrooms, Magdalena said. We need to eat mushrooms. The girl was my only visitor. When she spoke, I hung on to her every word. If we eat enough of them, we'll get the vitamin D we're missing from the sun. I didn't question her. For weeks, I based all my meals around mushrooms. I made mushroom casseroles, salads, risotto, soups, but I'm not sure it changed me. I'm not sure it changed her. How many mushrooms would it take to replace the sun? 
I wish I could ask the girl, but she's gone. Three weeks ago, I lost her for good. Mm, thank you so much. Yeah. So nice to hear you read it. You know, um, mushrooms, it's mushrooms are now in the zeitgeist in a big way. <laughs> yes. I this book a while ago. So did, did yeah. something tell you from the beyond to... No, I just looked up what's high in vitamin D <laughs> and it was mushrooms. And so I thought, oh, I like that visual too. So, you know, lemons and mushrooms, <laughs> yeah. which is interesting because mushrooms are grown in the dark, right? Right. Yeah. So <laughs> yes. Yes. I thought of that. Like, where does the vitamin D come from if they're grown in the dark? But it's true. I mean, they're, you know, so many mushrooms are he so healthy for, for yes. us. Um, yeah. It's one of those ironies. I just read something about um, ice cream. I think in the Atlantic, was it in the Atlantic? How how a little bit of ice cream every day is good for um, heading off um, diabetes, uh, type two diabetes. Well, wow. If you want to look it up and it, I'm just uh, like, how is this possible? It's like uh, <laughs> but one of my favorite foods possibly right <laughs> exactly anyway um so gosh i have so many questions one and i noticed this especially um listening to you is that the book is very kind of moody and poignant and you're very extremely upbeat you're one of the most upbeat <laughs> i know so how did you um how did the tone and, and the voice come about for you? And once you locked into it, was it then easy to continue that or, or what? I mean, because, you know, knowing you, it's like, wow, okay. <laughs> it's funny because most of my manuscripts were a little on the dark side. And I remember, you know, I always give my mom a manuscript to read early on. And after reading, I forget which one. And she said, Candy, did we do something wrong? <laughs> And I was like, no, no, you know, I, I think what happens is, yeah, in life, I'm just, I'm, I'm, you know, joyful, but there's also a very like deep, you know, I don't know, maybe a little bit of a dark side inside that I like to explore, you know, the joy I like to explore in life, but the, you know, the darker side is, you know, it takes a little bit more. So writing gives me a little time to, you know, and, and I think even with writing say something moody or on the dark side there's always a touch of optimism in there you know and so i think maybe that's what i enjoy bringing like i i go as low or dark into something and then i show how like look it, it can get better you know they can pull out of it kind of thing hmm. a therapist once said to me because i think i was I, I might have talked about this before um my son he was a lot younger and wanted to watch dexter and she's <laughs> very dark. And, uh, and I remember talking to her about this and I'm like, is that okay? And she said, you know, we all have a dark side yes. and somehow we have to deal with it. However that is. So maybe if you sit with them and watch it with him so that if there's discussion, you can talk about it. And of course, when the really horrible scenes happen, I'm like, <laughs> we had a thing where he had to, you know, look at me and cover his eyes. Right. Yeah. I mean, you can yeah. still hear, but right. You know, and so, I mean, I guess, you know, no matter how upbeat a person seems, there's the dark side, right? Yeah. There's and I also, I also get anxiety. I can get really anxious. And so 
I noticed, you know, from when my kids were young, when I started writing, writing helped me put my anxiety somewhere, if that makes sense. Like instead of, you know, lying in bed at night, worrying about the kids, worrying about life, you know, if my brain went to that space, instead, I would think of the character and start worrying about my character. And it just, it kind of calmed me in a strange way, you know, that, that excess energy went to something productive instead of, you know, worry. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, why novels and, or why fiction? Because you also write really strong nonfiction, your essays, what you've been writing about the book and, and, and what drove you to write the book are beautiful. Um, So has it always been fiction? Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny because I, I've enjoyed writing these articles. This is a little bit newer to me. I mean, I used to like kind of play around writing a little blog, you know, for fun. Um, I think I love fiction because I can explore so much more in fiction without the worry of, I don't know, it almost, there's a vulnerability in exposing yourself, like your real life. And so maybe I'm a little bit protective at times. And so even though underneath my novels, like there is a lot of exploration of me, it's so well hidden. I feel a lot of freedom. I feel a lot of freedom to to go there. Well, something from your real life is um, the Dottie character. Talk about <laughs> Dottie in the grocery store and uh, the, how how the character of Dottie evolved or came about. Well, I had the Dottie character already existed, but I I would go to the grocery store, my favorite grocery store, and there was a woman there one day, and she just reminded me so much of Dottie. She said something, you know, to a a tomato. She talked to, you know, she picked it up and said something. And I was like, oh my gosh, like that's what Dottie would do. You know, Dottie's this outcast. She's lonely. She doesn't have anyone to talk to. And, you know, in the novel, um, the voices in the market, which are, you know, from an old record player, she feels like they talk to her, like, you know, um, what's his name? Uh, don't think twice. It's all right. Uh, Bob Dylan tells her, don't think twice. It's all right. You know, it's just a song, but like she hears him. So, so I see this woman talking, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, it's Dottie. And so, you know, over time I start stalking her every time I see her in the store, I just sort of follow her and think like, okay, is she going to reveal something about Dottie for me? And, you know, she noticed it only once when I followed her outside to her bike and she kind of looked at me, but I, (laughs) you know, I looked at my phone and out to the parking lot. And then I just, you know, she, she seemed like, okay, you know, it was fine. Um, and after that I was much more discreet, but yeah, it just, you know, that's kind of like what I was saying about like finding things outside in life. And it would excite me every time I'd see her, I'd tell my writer's group, but there was a dotty spotting, we called it dotty spottings. Um, and you know, my husband laughed at me and my daughter told me to leave the poor lady alone. <laughs> yeah. So it, it, she just brought a spark to, to the writing and excited me. And I'd go home and then write like, Oh, that's a sign that I need to write today. You know? So, (laughs) you know, something else you wrote about, um, what I forget what the, the essay is called, but it's the playlist of Mm -hmm. what you listen to writing the book. Right. Then. And I wondered if you're going to put that on your website, you should put that on your website. Yeah. So I think it's called large hearted boy. It's going to be on his blog. Um, Yeah. So after every day after writing, you know, once in my computer, I put on my headphones and I go for a walk and I listen to music and I make a playlist that 
you know, gets me in the uh, mood of the novel. And it's so interesting. Do you do this like where there's a different kind of writing while you're walking and thinking, like you're kind of, you know, going through plot ideas or, or developing characters. Like there's so much going on um, when you're not at the computer. So I made a playlist and a lot of it in the very beginning, even before I made the playlist, you know, the band, the killers, mm-hmm. I listen to them all the time. And there's something about Brandon flowers, you know, longing, you know, eerie voice is just so perfect for the novel. And I love their storytelling. Their music has such storytelling in it. And I listen to it so much, you know, he wrote a song called Magdalena. And so that's where the name came from. There's a song and an album called Sam's Town. So I named the town after that. And then throughout the novel, there's all these little, you know, little references to their music just because I was so inspired and it was so fun to just like fit them in. Um, But yeah, music, I think really, really helps with mood. You know, if you're listening to just specific stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was, it was fun to write that. It was really fun to put that together and, and. So did she have a name before the song, before their song Magdalena? No, I've, I've known that song for so long and I just love the song. And I, it's actually about um, that pilgrimage from Nogales to Magdalena in Mexico. Like it's a, it's really cool. It's kind of a cool story, um, but I always love that name. And so no, she was Magdalena from the beginning. <laughs> What about other characters' names? There's Mario, her her uh, husband, who is having some problems. Um, yeah. Sister Mario, there's, how, how'd you come up with names? So, you-, you know, Mario, there was, I had a neighbor friend. His name was Mario. He was my age. He was just my best friend as a kid. And my mom called to tell me he passed away. And I was so sad. And I just remember, I just, I just wanted to use his name. Um, so I used that. Sister Rosario was a real nun. I went to Catholic school. Um, she was a real nun. And back in the 80s, I had really big hair. And she worked <laughs> She worked in the attendance office. And I would come in and she'd say, your hair looks like a tumbleweed. It looks like a desert plant. And I lo- I'd said, but don't you love it, Sister Rosario? You know. <laughs> so I lovingly used her name. <laughs> um, Frankie California. I heard like a kind of a mobster name, something, someone, and and they used where he's from. And I just thought that was hilarious. You know, this, this guy in the witness protection program trying to hide. So he calls himself Frankie California to really, hey, really, I'm from California. You know, um, what is Charmaine? Charmaine Lee. Why? I don't remember. I just like the name Charmaine. Buttons. Buttons. That was fun because I didn't want to give her an actual name. So, you know, Buttons was, Buttons is the Sunday school teacher and she's, she's this really mean little, it's Magdalena's grandmother, this mean lady. And so if a kid was misbehaved in class, she would sew a button on their shirt. And, you know, when it was time to remove it, she'd pull it off. So you always knew that there that was a bad kid because there'd be a hole in their shirt. Yeah. So she just kind of a mean, but she, you know, every, even mean people have a good side and good side, good people with a good side have a dark side. So it was kind of fun to play with that in the novel. And what, what works with that too, is the buttons is such a cute name. Yeah. <laughs> oh, not cute. Cause she's nasty. And <laughs> yes. so there's a nice contradiction there. Yes. Yes. Benjamin. What about Benjamin? Benjamin. 
it just felt like a nice long name. I don't know where that came from, but it just, it fit him so well. Um, yeah. And he's sort of a, I think of him as a complicated, tortured mm -hmm. character sort of, and, you know, readers oftentimes don't like him, <laughs> but, he's, but he's complicated, you know? I didn't dislike him. I, I felt bad for him, you know? I mean, felt bad for the conflict, I, you know, right. the experiencing, but yeah. that wasn't unlikable. It was just okay. Okay. complicated characters, you know, yes. you're the best. Yes. <laughs> I mean, isn't that interesting though? One reader says no, and the other reader's like, yeah. yeah. Um, what do you do with that when you, especially if you're in a critique group, because you are, and yeah. um, um, when you get conflicting, conflicting feedback, what do you do with it? Do you go into yourself and see what what feels right? Do you take, um, you know, do you look at, see what your critics, um, what they like to read and go, well, they like to read speculative fiction and they liked it or didn't like it. So I'm going to pay more attention to that. How do you deal with critiques? I guess is what I'm asking. You know, I'm like really open to it. Sometimes I think I'm too open. I have to be careful because when someone suggests something, I'm, I, I, give it a try, but then I always find my balance. You know, um, I like to hear, especially when it's a draft, I love just brutally honest feedback. Like, you know, that's why I laugh when my daughter said, yeah, none of the 40 pages, but these three paragraphs. I was like, thank you. Like, thank you. Because I, in my head, it all sounded great, but if it doesn't sound great, let, you know, let me get it right. Um, yeah. So I think I, I really work through it and then bringing it to the page, I just kind of feel it out. And so there's, you know, there's a rhythm in writing and there's voice. And so you, you know, you, you bring the critique, but then I, I just always have to make sure it feels like, right. And I don't know what that is, but you, you just kind of feel it. It's like music, like you can hear it, you know? Do you think you're an intuitive writer? Are you more intuitive than, than what? logical outlining plotting I mean like how do you yeah I can't outline or plot because I I feel like I feel like I'm a I'm a really inefficient writer so I don't <laughs> I don't suggest anyone do it this way I just don't know any other way but I spend a lot of time you know writing the character just basically spending time with the character on the page and then deleting just a ton of stuff as I go and it's like oh no no this is who she is not this and then from there, just keep going. And then I don't know what's going to happen until I get to know them. I always feel like if I set the ending, then I'm going to, I'm going to make the pair, the character feel so artificial, forcing her to that point, you know, like the ending of Magdalena, I wasn't even sure where it was going till pretty far in. And something's just surprised me like at the end. And so that was really fun to be just so surprised. Like, oh my gosh, this is what it was leading to, you know? And yeah, so I. So all that stuff that you cut, do you keep it somewhere in case you want to use it again? Or are you just cutting it and it's going into the trash can? Some in the beginning, I'll just toss in the trash can, but I, I have a file, you know, notes. Um, mm -hmm. I just call it notes and then I'll transfer it over, but I don't use much of it at all. And then I, I've gone back to read them and think, oh, why didn't I use that? That's kind of cool, you know, but if it just didn't fit, you know. Didn't fit. Yeah. So um, I, somewhere I read that Shirley Jackson, um, you didn't discover her until after you wrote Magdalena. 
Yes. So I, the epigraph of uh, Magdalena is, it's a Shirley Jackson quote that I found. And I didn't know, I hadn't read Shirley Jackson, but this quote, no live organism can continue for long to exist sanely under conditions of absolute reality. Even larks and katydids are supposed by some to dream. Mm. And I loved that quote so much because the novel also has a lot to do with imagination. Dottie uses her imagination. So she, you know, she never had children. So she imagines that Magdalene is her daughter and it helps heal her. She, she ends up finding how much power she has in her imagination. And that's kind of like where the novel goes. So that's why I chose the quote. So then I read, um, we have always lived in the castle and I was like, oh, this is good stuff. So I read um, The Haunting of Hill House and I was like, that was the first sentence of The Haunting of Hill House. And I already had a first draft of Magdalena and I thought, wow, okay, she's an inspiration, you know, kind of after the fact. (laughs) So, yeah, that's interesting. What about influences before the fact, before Shirley Jackson, before you were writing before you even started writing, like, did you have favorite authors growing up and as a teenager and then in college, any authors that kind of stayed with you for whatever reason? You know, in college, I wasn't reading much fiction, you know, just reading my textbooks and stuff. So I, my husband and I started our family right after I graduated from college. So I went from college to being at home with my kids and, you know, it was, it was, such a contrast. So I would have what was called library night where my husband would stay with the baby and I would go read. And that's when I discovered Toni Morrison. And I, I just was in awe. I couldn't believe that someone wrote like this and and made me feel the way she did. Um, I actually, my first, the first novel I read of hers was jazz. Um, It was at the library. I think I got the cassette for for a few dollars and I listened to it. It was brilliant. So I bought the book. I read it. And then I went on to read all her novels. I just loved her so much. And so she kind of inspired me to like, okay, let me do this thing. Like, I don't want to just read. I want to write. And who else? Like Mary Oliver, you know, I mean, her poetry just makes you feel so much. And in her book, have you read her essays, uh, Upstream? No. Oh, I read it once a year. Mm-hmm. She just, you know, she looks at the world like it's just magical. Like she, I think one chapter is like, it's a six page long chapter where she just watches a spider. And I love that chapter so much. I read it to my husband and my daughter. I'm like, you guys have to hear this. She's just watching a spider. And they're just sort of laughing at me. But I read all six pages and they're like, okay, yeah, she's actually, you know, really great. But um, yeah. What about like as a kid, did you, were there like books that, that got you into reading or did you go to the library and go to a certain, I don't know, certain section, kids section? Yes. I remember my mom taking me to the library. My family, um, those in my family are not big readers at all. Um, but I do remember my mom taking me to the library and I don't know, just getting my hands on any book. Um, I had the, what is it? Laura Ingle Wilder series. You know, I had those on my shelf. Um, yeah, just kind of anything I could get my hands on at the time. I don't remember. Oh, and of course, you know, Nancy Drew, oh goodness. You know, you know, that kind of thing. Um, 
I wonder, you know, you're such a, you're also like really, I don't know, I don't want to say an athlete, but you surf, you're a surfer. <laughs> so you don't find many surfers who are also writers. It's like, <laughs> you know, surfers tend to be like outdoors people and that's what they do. And so I'm curious about that. Like, did you have to, <clears throat> I don't know, was it a challenge to make yourself sit behind a desk or in a chair and work on your stuff? Well, I kind of like both. So my son was about 10 when he started surfing and I was afraid to surf because I'm afraid of sharks. So I didn't think I'd ever get in the water, but I thought if my 10 year old's going out there, I want to get out there. And my husband had been surfing forever. So um, my son's best friend and, you know, and he started to surf and the dads, the best friend's dad surfed. And so the best friend's mom was one of my closest friends and she and I surfed. So Margo and I would meet every morning, we would drop the kids off at school and then go meet in the water. And so I would just sort of do a, you know, a little exercise, a little unwinding before I would write and, you know, think about the story. And, and I always think about, you know, um, when I was out there, if an idea came to me and, you know, I have nothing to write on, you know, I, I need, I want to remember that idea because I want to take it home and to write. So I would scratch with my nail. I would scratch like a keyword in the wax on the board so that when I got to shore, I wouldn't forget, you know? Um, so yeah, it was just kind of like a, a great way to start the day. And then I'd be tired enough to, you know, sit at the computer and focus in. Yeah. It's like, I have a ton of energy and that's why after writing, I need to go for a walk or, you know, I do lots of things, but it's, it's the whole balance. It's nice to have that quiet time. It's the one thing that just maybe calms me. (laughs) (laughs) We're almost the end of our time. Um, I wonder if you have any advice or for the writers who are listening, who, uh, I don't know, might be having trouble with something they're working on or need inspiration or, you know. I think maybe just stay in touch with the magic of storytelling, you know, like that old magic that excited you as a child. Writing can be so hard and and frustrating and, you know, all those things. But I think to to get back to the page, to sit down. Sometimes you need just that, that excitement to come back. And I know it's hard to find. I mean, I I don't always find it. I get really frustrated too, but, but I think if you could find, what was that thing that made you fall in love with writing, find that magic and maybe, you know, that will help you get back into it. Yeah. Because often, you know, especially, you know, those first days, weeks, months, of writing, we're so excited, right? And then yes. we're having to work. Yes. Our way through, you know, learn various aspects of craft that make it hard. Right. And, um, if you can, yeah, if you can find some way to have fun with it. Exactly. Right? Maybe find someone in the grocery store you can stalk. <laughs> <laughs> or I listen, I listen to music. I listen for signs, like, you know, like lyrics, like resolving something. Sometimes, you know, they show up in a song or, you know, you never know where you'll find them. It's almost like just be open to it and you might find something. You never know. Candy, thank you. This has thank been you, Barbara. This has been so much fun. Thanks to all of you for loving books and taking the time to listen. And a huge thanks, as always, to our Patreon supporters. Thank you to Travis Barrett, who does our music and sound editing and has an album's worth of typewriter music on Spotify. The playlist is called Just My Type. 
You can access our archive of shows 25 years worth at writersonwriting.com. If you'd like to get in touch with me, email me at penonfire at earthlink.net. My website is penonfire.com. Marie Stone is at mariestone at gmail.com. And Travis Barrett is at travisbarrettcreative at gmail.com. And thank you for listening. And in the meantime, remember to stay in the chair. Thank you.